All right, good afternoon. My name is Phil Klein and welcome to the Klein Files. This uh, is a very special broadcast that we're doing as we just went live on Facebook. Uh, and we're going to be broadcasting uh, this uh, throughout the world. Uh, we've had a lot of folks calling us over the last two weeks. Caroline, would you say? This is Caroline Gear, my yes. assistant and uh, case manager on, on most cases that come through this company. Um, uh, this case is going to be on uh, Olivia Newton-John's uh, missing boyfriend, Patrick Kim McDermott. And we welcome you here to the Klein Files. So, um, I think we need to start from the beginning. I, I would, and and uh, and uh, and uh, I guess we need to preface this by for the last two weeks since uh, an article came out uh, on the Daily Mail uh, regarding myself and this company and its employees and uh, a book that is being written. Uh, by uh, Yvette Nipar. Now let's let's explain to the audience who N- Yvette Nipar is. Uh, and I know she likes to be called Nipar because I was corrected by her a couple of times on the phone. Um, but the bottom line is 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 we'll set this case up. Uh, and it's a great story for those of you that um, that are into mysteries. Um, and this is this is a true was a true mystery. Uh, at the time when we got it. So I got a phone call after a discovery that I had back in what, 2007, wasn't it, Caroline? 2007, I believe it was. I got a phone call from uh, NBC and they said, uh, we, uh, congratulations on a case that I just solved. Uh, I believe it was the DeWalt case. Yes. Where we were flying into New Braunfels. We crashed an airplane, a very nice airplane, as a matter of fact. Uh, and um, it made national news uh, that we had a prisoner on board, uh, an FBI agent, a CIA agent, a psychologist, uh, and a kidnapped child and her mother. I was sitting in the back of the plane with the mother when we crashed the plane. Anyway, everybody got off safe. We all had a couple of bumps and bruises, a couple of cuts. You know, it, it worked out in the end, other than the ownership of the airplane, uh, that uh it uh, didn't quite work out. I know a lot of you have always asked me what happened to the airplane. Why did we crash? Uh, the bottom line is is that we uh, hit some animals on the uh, runway and it took out the landing gear at 120 miles an hour. And we spun down the runway and down into a ditch. So after that story kind of hit the media and, of course, bringing back another uh, kidnapped uh, child and its mother, a parental kidnapping uh, from down in Mexico, which back in the 2000 era, it was a little bit safer than it is now. You probably get down there as an American. Some places in Mexico get your head chopped off. But uh, especially where we were was down in Zacateas, uh, Mexico. Um, anyway, long story short, I re- started receiving calls from the national media. I did some interviews and uh, all of a sudden NBC called me and said, hey, we'd, we'd like to do an interview with you. And I said, okay, great. And uh, uh, so... Um, after I did the interview, um, Dateline NBC called me, a very nice lady from Dateline NBC called me and said, you know, we'd like you to come up and consult NBC. Uh, NBC was a different place at the time. Um, and they were really into doing stories that were truthful and wanted to get to the bottom of things. So I got on an airplane, flew up there, got up on the, I believe it was the eighth floor where all the executives sit. <clears throat> and I was ushered into a, uh, 
a conference room such as this. This is uh, this is our conference room uh, where we uh, where all the big stuff is done and where we all meet. And I sat down and they said, "Listen, we'd really like a consult." And I'd say, "Okay." Uh, and there were three cases. The first case was a guy from Florida that uh, walked off and uh, disappeared from his family. I said he went for a swim in the ocean and disappeared. Uh, little sidebar on this: he eventually was found. Um, I guess, what would you say, alive, but he was part of a drug cartel and uh, he agreed to testify to the drug cartel and eventually they found his body out in the swamp. Uh, number two was a, a lady that went missing down in Louisiana, uh, down in the Baton Rouge area. Uh, and the lady went missing down there. Um, she was eventually found uh, before any filming could take place. And the third one was this guy and they didn't tell me who the players were, obviously, in all three of these cases. The third one was a guy uh, that uh, disappeared from uh, down in Malibu uh, and actually uh, down in Long Beach, California. Uh, and, he, and when he disappeared, um, he didn't leave a trace of uh, who he was, where he was. Um, all of his belongings were left on a fishing boat that went on an exploration overnight. And equally, um, everything at home was normal. Uh, there were two uh, divisions assigned to it, LAPD, Missing Persons Division, who, by the way, I, I take another little sidebar here. The LAPD, I have to say, is maybe one of the quintessential best police agencies. Wouldn't you agree? One of the best police agencies in the United States of America. Yeah, I've worked with, um, uh, currently working with uh, Orange County, which I guess is kind of all right there. It's but right there. everybody that we've come in contact with has been really forthcoming, very professional, very uh, willing to work with us. And, and that was the great thing is the law enforcement guys said, hey, we need another set of eyes on this one because we're not getting it. Mm -hmm. We're just we're just not getting it. And so we came in and, and I said, uh, and back to New York, I said, okay, this case right here, I think this guy's alive. And they said, why do you think he's alive? I said, well, I think he's alive for two reasons. Number one, nobody saw him go overboard. Number two, all his belongings are on the boat. Number three, uh, according to a couple of witnesses, they saw him get off the boat and he had caught some fish and had given his fish away. Mm -hmm. and, um, and, and number four, most importantly, um, according to the file that I read, there had been some sightings of him uh, down uh, in Puerto Vallarta area sometimes. And then, of course, across the peninsula onto the Baja Peninsula of uh of Mexico. And I said, you know, you get these sightings, uh, you know, where are these people coming up with this? Well, they tell me it turns out that the case number three, the one that I picked out of the three, um, was a case of a guy named Patrick Kim McDermott. Mr. McDermott's claim to fame? Nothing. I, he's a nobody. He was a camera guy, or no, he wasn't even a camera guy, he was a gaffer. And that's a sound guy and a lighting guy. I mean, you depend upon what you're doing. He, he adjusts the lights and does the lights and in, in productions. Uh, he, his claim to fame is to be in a couple of movie sets. And his other claim to fame is he dated Olivia Newton-John. Um, so, of course, the national media just loves and adores Olivia Newton-John. Uh, Europe, uh, Australia, uh, those media groups just love and adore this woman. I mean, she's like a national treasure, a well, hero. She, yeah. And that's what that's what the story of Patrick Kim McDermott is all about. Now, anybody who knows me, in fact, anybody that knows any of us around this office, 
we don't care who you are and what you do. I mean, I've met people, I, 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 so many famous people from presidents all the way down to actresses and actors, governors, senators, congress. How many have I protected out there and been dealt with? A lot. A, a lot. And so once you get over, you know, their title or their status, I always treat people just as I wish to be treated with dignity and respect. And I, I deal with a lot of people and we do a lot of work. And those of you out there that know us, that follow us, know that we do a lot of work with some very famous groups. So it really didn't impress me when they said Olivia Newton-John. Although I will say this, as a young man growing up, you know, you talk about Greece and high school, how, you know, plays were done. You know, she is a national treasure. And, and I'll say this to her, and I hope she's watching this, as I know a lot of people around the world are going to be watching this today. Uh, because I know the national media is, is looking for a quote from me because I haven't given any quotes since they, since uh, all these articles have come out over the last two weeks. Um, you know, she is a national treasure and God bless her and God love her. And, you know, she's beat cancer. How many times now? Three, I think, two or three. I mean, my goodness. More this, than she should have oh, to. Oh, yes. And I, and I will tell you, uh, you know, we're all proud of her here uh, and we're, we, we hope and pray for her, her cancer that, it, that it's eradicated and and most of all she teaches us all that faith mm -hmm. and i think that's the greatest thing about olivia newton john is that she teaches us all to have faith and by guess i think that we all need a little bit more of that in the world these days is faith so um i agreed to take the case from nbc nbc's agreement was they would pay me x amount of dollars and it was all access there was nothing hidden so they came to our offices one night about, what, one o'clock in the morning. I, they just I showed in, up. I was in college at the time, and I remember you calling me and telling me, hey, I'm about to start doing this, and I just need to prepare you for it. And I hadn't moved back here yet. I was uh, at Texas Tech my last year, my God senior bless, year. God bless, God bless, everywhere. And um, I remember coming home for Christmas. I think it was the uh, one of my holidays. I'm pretty sure it was Christmas. And I walked in, and I was like, holy cameras. They're yeah. everywhere, all yeah. over the office, in your car, at the house. And I'm mic'd up most of the time, you know, and, and this is a little reminder for those of you that are aspiring actors, actors, actresses, uh, uh, news media, whatever. Uh, always turn your mic off when you go to the bathroom. That's very important. <laughs> and that's a little fun fact there. But anyway, we were we were completely mic'd up. Uh, the building was uh, placed down and secure. There was lights everywhere. I mean, it was, it was like a Hollywood studio. And I didn't, I guess at the time I didn't really realize that this is what we're, we were going to get into, but they assigned me an excellent producer uh, by the name of Joe Delmonico. He is probably one of the most, uh, you met Mr. Delmonico. I think I met him one time. Yeah. He, he is just, I, he, I, there's no words to describe this guy. He's really, he's, he's a news guy. He's an old school news guy. He's kind of like us. I, that's why I think we, I think we clicked with him a little bit. Is because he doesn't care who you are, or what you are, or what you do. His job is to record what happens. Mm -hmm. um, so anyway, um, we got started, and um, when we got started, um, we created a war room. Uh, Christian Richard was one of the investigators on it, who is uh, right now works for the state of Texas. She's an excellent young lady. Uh, hard worker. Uh, so Kristen was there. I was there. Um, there was a, a few other investigators. Gil Martinez was there. 
who works with us currently out of LA. Uh, and there was there was a bunch of uh, a bunch of investigators that that we pulled together as a team. So we got everybody together. We did an initial initial case read. And what initial case read is is every case we get gets a case read. We go from the minute one that there's a problem, or actually a day before the problem, and we work it all the way through the day of the problem, and then we get from the end of the day of the problem to where we are today. And that kind of gives everybody a full briefing on what we're doing. Well, we discovered that Mr. McDermott uh, was, a again, a gaffer uh, for some Hollywood uh, studios in Hollywood, California. He had met Olivia Newton-John. They had had an, a relationship. Uh, it was a good relationship. Uh, but, you know, I guess it's hard to be married to somebody that's public, a public figure. And Olivia Newton-John is the quintessential. Well, and as famous as she is. Yeah, as famous public figure. So he was on her arm. Uh, a lot of the, the world media kind of blew him up a little bit, said he was just arm candy for Olivia at some points. Uh, they were rude to him. Um, you know, when you're behind the cameras, other than producers and directors, I've learned in Hollywood, uh, it was a culture shock to me, by the way, Hollywood was, um, you are a, um, you're just, you're just another guy. You're just, go get me some water. Go get me a sandwich. Go get me the makeup girl. Go get me this. Go get me that. If you're a lighting guy, the light looks terrible. They watch monitors. My face looks terrible. You need to move this lighter. I mean, you, you can get to the point of abuse. But however, when he met Olivia, I think it was a commercial she had done. He met her on a commercial. Uh, they actually struck it off really well. And um, Patrick's background is, is a couple of things. Number one, uh, that uh, he worked his way up uh, through being a gaffer. But, you know, out there in Hollywood, you're thin and far between uh, paid gigs. You know, you got to make your money on your gig and then you got enough money to try to get to the next gig. And then um, in, in, in the whole sequence of the story, um, you, you find out that they struck a good relationship, but that he was angry about it. And his background was pretty simple. Again, uh, he was married to a girl named Yvette Nepar, and they had a child by the name of Chance. Chance McDermott was a, a young man when we got into the, uh, into the case, uh, probably how old I think it was like eight, eight, I think eight, I say eight. eight to 10, somewhere in there. Uh, and he worked his way into, you know, uh, what his mother likes to call uh, the national media exposure, which was pretty horrific. Uh, I would say on this, it was a very big story back in 2005, 2000. What, when did he so he missing? actually went missing in um, June of 2005, in which five, right. I know some of our followers right now are asking a couple questions. Um, what year this was, what year he went missing. Um, so he went missing on June 5th, um, 2005. 2005. And the national media took the story and it really put everybody through everybody in the spotlight, including Yvette Nepar. So the story goes, Nepar uh, figures out and gets a phone call that, that uh, the call, Patrick's car is down at the, down at the yacht. Uh, she, if my memory is correct, and I believe it is that he was supposed to pick up chance and he never did not pick up chance. Um, and so she got concerned. She did a little bit of, her own little investigation work found out that um, uh, Chance, I mean, excuse me, Patrick uh, had gone on a fishing trip, overnight fishing trip, uh, and the bottom line was his car was there, but he was not. 
So she became concerned. She called in the LAPD. She called in the Coast Guard. And that spun up the case of of Patrick Kim McDermott. Um, So when we got involved, again, that brings us to the day after he was missing. Um, So the Coast Guard launched a full investigation. First, what they did was they did what everybody did. They scanned the harbor. Um, They wanted to know, you know, did he fall off the boat? Uh, He washed up on shore. Uh, What had happened? Uh, The second thing they did was they began to interview everybody that was on the boat. Now, remember, the boat is already in. It's gone. It's gone out again uh, to another uh, fishing trip. Uh, Probably come in one time before the Coast Guard gets involved. Mm -hmm. And then Coast Guard calls LAPD. LAPD comes in and they start their own sister investigation. Um, And where everything goes haywire in, in the investigation, and again, I want to repeat, I have nothing against the what the investigation that the Coast Guard did, and I have nothing against the, the investigation the LAPD did. Uh, I believe the gentleman's name is Nesbitt, uh, was the lead investigator for the Coast Guard, and uh, I think it was switched around five, six, seven, eight times of investigators to LAPD, and that's not unnormal because nobody likes to be in missing persons. <laughs> Everybody hates it. They agreed. Yeah. And uh, and so they get out of there as fast as they can. In fact, one guy told me, he said, well, I was only there for two weeks because I want to get back on night patrol because at least I you know, got to enjoy the day. And I thought, well, there you go. That explains it. So the investigation starts and they, they in, interview each of these people one at a time. Did you see him? Yes, I saw him. Did you, you know, did you interact with him? Yes, I did interact with him. Did you see where he was when he pulled up? Yes, I saw him when we pulled in because we got fuel. And this is very important in this case. We got fuel onto the boat about a mile out from the dock where we dock because they'd like to have the fuel on board. So the next group of customers get on board. And so how did you see him? Well, I saw him on the other side of the boat because we were told that when they're fueling the boat, you have to go to one side of the boat and there's some safety precautions they put in while they're fueling the boat. Great. Bye. So did you see him? Yeah, he's standing right next to me. Okay. So when you left from the fueling dock and you went to the dock where you get off and everybody checks the fish and the work guys, are, you have to pay your tab in the bar and they have a little bar inside this. And I say boat. It, it, it's actually a very large yacht. Um, it has a galley. It has place to sleep. Uh, I think 26, I think it was, if my memory is correct. Um, they have a captain. They have a, they have a Bozeman. They have uh, uh, five deckhands, four deckhands, actually, with Bozeman. It'd be five. And so, uh, you know, they, they, they're, they're helping you all along the way. And then they have a cook. So you go through. The cook remembers him, obviously. Was his, tip, was his tab paid? Absolutely, it was paid. So that means they don't pay tabs until you get to either fueling the boat or you're on the new on the on the dock where you get off and get your fish. So we know he was alive in between A and B. Okay, um, and so the investigators continued their investigation by saying, "Did you see him? Yeah. By the way, oh, he gave me my fish on on land. They were off the boat. They were getting their fish, and, and a nice gentleman, uh, McDermott, gave his fish to a nice gentleman." You got to love that. I mean, so now we know he was alive, according to LAPD, and according to witnesses. Nesbitt. Uh, they, they, we have some witnesses that say, actually, he did. He was he up on the dock. The he walked off the boat. <clears throat> so 
the mystery begins when and i think it's also important real quick to yeah. note that they have documentation of him paying for his food and his drinks within the last hour of that trip that's when you pay right that's so within the last hour of docking he paid exactly so here's where the mystery starts on the boat they're cleaning the boat for the next group coming through and the crew finds a wallet some keys and uh i think there was one other item i don't want to say what it was i can't really remember it's not that important but they put it into a baggie and they take it up to the marina guard the guy who runs the the freedom that was the name of the boat the freedom and they get the bag and they get it and they store it behind because sometimes people are you know you got a lot of stuff off the boat mm-hmm. sometimes you forget what you got on the boat so they get this and they give it to the marine captain and the marine captain holds it and after the marine captain holds it about 24 48 hours is when the park calls and that's where the mystery starts what happened to patrick McDermott? so the factors off the boat are number one he has lost his keys and his wallet factor two is that he was witnessed off the boat so that leads the frank liversedge who is now passed and by the way i know the liversedge family is going to be watching this mr liversedge is maybe one of the most nicest honest people i've met in the investigation world mm-hmm. he said mr klein he said he, he granted me an interview both on the air with mb uh, with nbc uh nbc show uh dateline and he and he also we kept in touch on the phone and i think by that time you were here uh and he would yes, call so here just to say philip where where are we mm-hmm. uh, and you talked to mr Liver, said what do you think of him he was very polite very nice cried mm-hmm. this really affected him and I think towards the end of his life, he wasn't in, in very good health, but he, when he died, uh, I think I got feedback from the family that this really weighed heavy on his shoulders. And folks, that's what I tell you, uh, everybody who comes into this office and, and, and those of you in the media that are listening, you know, this is very hard on the family, on both, in this case, on both sets, the missing mm-hmm. person's family and, of course, the family at uh, the marina uh, down in Long Beach. So um, as we move on through the case, um, we pick up the case after reviewing all the documents. And the first thing we do is we go try to make contact with the U.S. Coast Guard. Well, of course, they're not going to talk to us. That's their investigation. That's the way it is. Hey, and by the way, be sure to send us your notes. <laughs> okay, we'll be glad to do that. Then we go to LAPD, and they are, like I said, wonderful. You know, look, we need another set of eyes on this. You guys are proven in what you do. Uh you know, let's let's talk, let's walk, let's let's get this thing going. So we start discussing with LAPD. We discuss it with the investigators that were on it. I think all I think there were five investigators at one point that were on it. Um, and and here's what we know: McDermott's car is out on the drive. Okay, it's it hadn't been started, uh, so of course they get it and they do forensics on it. They go to his house, issue a search warrant, go into the house. They get into the house. The house is immaculate. Uh, there is no notes on his computer. There are no. There's nothing to indicate that suicide, anything about suicide. Mm-hmm. Um, and so they, at the same time, 
do a forensic search of his car. There's no blood. There's no, there's just no nothing. There's no drugs, no marijuana. So then they start with the people. Uh, they are granted an interview with Olivia and John. Of course, you know, Yvette Nipar is there. Um, am I a very big Nipar fan? Probably not. <laughs> Uh, I think she manipulates situations, but that's what actresses do, especially washed up act actresses. Can I, can I just say that? Yeah, yeah, yeah you did. And so, um, and so we'll talk about Yvette here in just a few minutes. And, you know, again, maybe I'm being a little bit too tough on her, but uh, myself and her never hit it off. And she lied to me and she didn't show up for a meeting. And, but we'll get into all that here in a minute. So Nepar is kind of, try to steer the investigation a little bit, according to some of the investigators. Now, Nesbitt is a smart guy. He, he's, he's been around a while in the Coast Guard. Uh, he's a police officer at the same time uh, down in, I think it's Arizona. So he's a decorated uh, homicide guy. I really like the guy. I think he's a, I think he's a righteous guy. Uh, I think he's a little starstruck right now. He's, he's aligned his uh, star with uh, Miss John and... Uh, uh, and Nepar, uh, and you know, he, he thinks there's a body out there somewhere. There is, you know, it's going to be somebody else's body. So what we do is we jump, uh, we jump into the case and we begin to, after investigating and talking to law enforcement, other than Nesbitt, we start, and we did talk to him on the phone a couple of times, but he just, he just wasn't. He just wasn't forthcoming. He told us a little bit, but, you know, he said that, you know, Coast Guard rules since he was, uh, I think he's auxiliary Coast Guard, and does some time. And, uh, he gets called up on major cases, that sort of thing. Uh, yeah. But he was very adamant with me that, you know, hey, Philip, look, I, I'm just not going to discuss it with you. Okay, fine. So we'll do our own thing. So we have a couple of, we have a couple of sightings that we are noting in the file. And so we make contact with uh, two groups. Um, one down in Cabo San Lucas, uh, which is a really good uh, group of people down there, uh, down in the marina. And number two, there's a halfway point between the United States border uh, and uh, Cabo San Lucas. Uh, and uh, so we had a couple of uh, uh, people there. So that's where we start our case. We got uh, our investigators on the ground. We interviewed the folks in the marina halfway down. Yeah, he was there. Uh, showed him a picture. Yeah, he's, that's him. That's what he looked like. Uh, what did he do? He was looking for a job. And you're like, well, what kind of job was he looking for? He really, he loves the water. He loves the sea. He wanted to be a deckhand. We had nothing for him. Uh, we do sports fishing. When storm season is here, we shut down. Uh, and that's and, and that's one thing that keyed me off as an investigator. Because as an investigator, there are some things you just don't know, right? I mean, you just don't know. So you got to teach yourself about it. So I, it struck me when I got back in the car and I, I, I asked Gil, I said, Gil, what do you, you know, what do you mean that they shut down on the Pacific coast? He said, well, it's storm season. He says, you get these huge storms that spin up down there. And then a lot of them ride the coast all the way up, sometimes all the way to California. Usually they peter out because of the cooler water up towards California. But these storms can get really cranked up. And during that time, the seas are very heavy and big ships, you know, commercial fishing boats, all the way to huge yachts, kind of put their nose in the in the in the winter time, put their nose in the docks, and they stay there because of the damage that some of these big waves can create. Who knew that? Um, I thought these big ships were you know invincible, but they're not. So 
everybody's out of a job other than the captain who sits in the boat and some of the boat deckhands that keep the boat washed and keep it clean. So we did a timeline from the time he went missing to the time these reports started coming in, and some were like leaked to the national media. Who leaked them? You know, here we go. We track that. Who is leaking this stuff to the national media? Because that's important. Whenever people start talking, and Caroline, you know this best because you deal with the media most. When you, when, you, when you leak it, there's usually two objectives, right? Mm -hmm. One, to get your story out, right? Right. And what's the second? To get attention to the story. So you got something you want to sell, whether it's commercial time or whether you're a famous person and you need TV time because your star has faded. And so that kind of went, oh, you know, okay, well, we'll just, maybe it's just an anomaly. We'll just keep it in the back of the file. Right. So we head down to Cabo San Lucas, correct? Mm -hmm. And when we arrive in Cabo San Lucas, I think the most interesting part of the story starts to come out as when we hit the marina and we hit the outskirts of this beautiful, beautiful town. If you've never been down to Cabo San Lucas, I suggest I, I suggest that you <laughs> I suggest you go. Uh, and I and, and and so what I want to do now is I want to pause for just a second. And I, I want to start part two of this case because that's important. So you now have the background on this case. And now we'll start part two of the missing person, Patrick Kim McDermott. Part two. Okay, welcome to part two of the, um, of the missing person's case, Patrick Kim McDermott. So where we left off uh, in part one was uh, our timeline, putting it together for investigators in our first trip down to... Cabo San Lucas. Uh, as we arrived down in Cabo San Lucas, uh, you know, my main thing was let's get some people on air uh, because NBC was pushing me to do my interviews with people on air. Now, if you're an investigator and you go around flashing an ID and you say, hey, I'm, I'm an investigator, I'm investigating this missing person's case. You get a lot of people that go, I don't want to be on TV, right? right. I mean, that was our big thing. Yeah. I don't want to be on TV. That's not what I want to do, but I'll talk to you because I do have information. So we were pulling these people aside and they were telling us, okay, look, and by the way, let me throw a sidebar in here. The reason people don't want to get on TV in an investigation such as this is you must understand the Mexican culture and what's going on in Mexico. Mm -hmm. This was the beginning of El Chapo, uh, his reign of terror over the, over the country. People were being executed uh, out in the countryside for talking about things that could lead to marijuana fields or the sale of marijuana or the transportation of marijuana or cocaine. Uh, I don't think meth was that big back then. No. But it was, it, was, it was mostly cocaine and marijuana yeah. back then. So people were scared. And they didn't want to show, show their face on television, which is fine. I, I get that. Frustrated NBC, but, you know, it is what it is. So what we did was we, um, we did two things, actually. We, we got these uh, witnesses, we took their statements, uh, and then we followed up on their statements immediately because I can't go down to Cabo San Lucas and live. Uh, we went in on a work visa, I think it was, wasn't it, Carolina? Back then, I think it was 10-day work visa. Yeah. Like so you could work down there for 10 days, then you had to leave the country, and then you had to come back. And so, you know, I did that a couple of times. But anyway, we, we, we found out a couple of things. Here's, here's the bullet points on this. Number one is that um, McDermott had been seen. Okay, uh, we had 
about four or five witnesses that told us, yeah, I've, I've, I've seen him. This is where he hangs out in the bar. We went to the bar. You know this guy? Yeah, I know him. How long ago did you see him? Uh, you know, it's kind of summertime, um, so uh, he's not going to be here. Why isn't he going to be here? Well, because it's storm season. Okay, now we've had two people tell us about storm season. Mm-hmm. What does that mean? Well, if you work on a boat, I said, whoa, 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 wait a minute. If you work on a boat, do you know if this guy worked on a boat? Yeah, he worked on a boat. What was the boat's name? Well, I don't remember the boat, but I can show you a picture of it because it's hanging out there at the harbor down there at uh, Cabo San Lucas. Come show me. So they showed us the picture. Okay. Then you start asking around, whose boat is this? Whose boat is this? You couldn't get a, the, the, you know, the, the name of the boat usually on the side of the boat. And I shouldn't say boat, yacht. It's a very large yacht. Who owned the yacht? Asked the harbor master, who owned the yacht? The harbor master said, you know, it's somebody that we don't like to talk about down here. And somebody that does not like, uh, how do you want to say it? Does not like <laughs> publicity. Yeah, doesn't like way. to be. And so, shown. so we knew at that point, okay, now we've, now we've got one, two, three, four, five witnesses that say they've seen him a lot. Okay, we got a pattern running now. Uh, so, well, where do they usually go? Well, they either usually harbor here in the summer or they harbor down in the Mexican Riviera. Well, we're in the Mexican Riviera. Now, everybody that doesn't know the Mexican Riviera, uh, what are the th- three harbors down there? Uh, Puerto Vallarta, uh, uh, what's the island down there? Uh, oh, gosh. Now I'm, that you're saying Now that. I'm having a mental blank. We'll get back to it. But anyway, <laughs> the Mexican Riviera, okay? Yes. So I say Puerto Vallarta because that's integral in the story. So remember, we're between what I'm telling you and to where we are today, there was a whole bunch of activity back in L.A. We went back to L.A., did interviews out in L.A., um, friends, family, neighbors, etc. And we'll talk about that just real briefly because nothing was really garnered other than who Pat was, what his issues were, and his neighbor telling me the story about Yvette Nipar. So... We're in the process doing public information requests under 552 out of Texas, all the way to open records requests in California, Arizona, places we knew he was. We were pulling records in Mexico uh, of this yacht. So we were doing, like I say, here's just three of the boxes full of information uh, that we pulled, documentation. And we call this the documentation that uh, we call the case file. We actually have four. We have, boxes, we have four so or five of those boxes. We just brought out the most important ones. But I guess I'll interject this here, Carol. And, and Caroline will talk about this just real briefly. We keep these boxes for one reason and one reason only. And that's for the children. Yeah. Kidnapped children are told either their parent is dead or the parent didn't love them and disappeared, or mm-hmm. whatever the kid is told. Anytime there's a child involved, my direct orders as the lead investigator and CEO of this company is that we keep these boxes. Keep them. Because one day, someone's going to come knock on our front door and say, I want to see my box. And that is so true. Yeah. We have kids that come knock on this front door out here. As you can assume, we're very security conscious and we're knocked down in security, so you just can't get in our building. No way to get in our building unless you have passcodes and everything else. But these kids come knocking here and we sit in this conference room and I always, what do I do? I put the books, the boxes in front of them. Here they are. And tell them what they want to know. 
show them. Show well, them. No, I actually walk out the door. I leave them by themselves and let them read. And then I come in and I say, okay, I'm here. And I'll answer any question. Right. And I've, I've broken meetings with some very high level people to sit in here with these children that are now adults. Uh, and so they can figure out what happened. Right. Because if one parent's sitting in jail or one parent's dead or something's happened and they want to know the story. Mm-hmm. They want to know the real story. So we let them see the real work product. It's called work product. So, uh, in, 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 inject a little bit about the health of that for the kids. Well, it's a, I mean, it's just a By the way, Caroline is our MSC in this office. And so she handles the children. Go ahead. Um, when children are able or, or children that have been abducted or parental alienated and they're able to, um, they grow to become an adult. That's when they start questioning what the real truth is. You know, it's, uh, you say this all the time, there's, you know, his truth, her truth, and then the real truth is somewhere in the middle. And um, that's why these children that are grown into adults come back um, and they look for that. What, what is it that we obtained? How did we find them? What is the work product um, that we were able to go through and the process we were able to go through in order to, you know, bring them back to their other side of the family or, or a loved one or whatever the case may be a guardian or, um, anything of that nature. So it's a, it's a therapeutic um, technique. It, it's a process that children go through regardless. Um, I, no I want to say we had an 18 year old that came in and did the same old. thing. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, when I say adult, it's yes, 18 is an adult, but I mean, that's a, a younger adult versus one that's married and has, you know, and I, will tell, and, I will tell all of you this. Hmm. I'm the big, strong gun-carrying investigator in this office, and I have a whole team of investigators in this office. And I rarely, rarely shed a tear because, you know, you got to kind of repress what goes on. Um, And in this case, uh, this young man, Chance McDermott, he is a true victim. And I hope one day uh, that he gets on an airplane and comes down here to our offices and sits down in front of me and says... Without his mother, I don't want his mother in this room. I want nothing to do with his mom, and we'll get to that. But I, I want, I want him to come down here and read this, and I want him to get a, get away from the national media and the and, and some of the junk they lay out, um, because uh, we we worked hard on this case. I mean, we literally worked hard on this case, and I uh, to see some of the crap that comes out in the media, you know, I've learned to take it and just move on. Because, you know, the media doesn't know anything other than what people try to steer them to say. You mm-hmm. get Hollywood producers and everything else involved. You know, it's, it's a mess. But anyway, here's the boxes. So moving on in the story, um, basically what happened was we eventually came to the point where we needed to go to L.A. And we needed to sit down with people and we needed to talk to people, both that were on the boat, that worked with him. We canvassed his neighborhood. Uh, Amanda Lambert was with me on that. Um, who is a former employee of this, of this team. Uh, and, and she and I actually literally banged on doors for, I think, six hours, seven hours, and we interviewed people. So let's start with that. That's the first part. Um, the most telling was one of his close neighbors that they had a relationship with. They ate dinner together sometimes. Olivia actually went over with him and ate dinner with one of his neighbors one night. And... The husband and Patrick had formed a relationship. 
And Patrick's issue was that the pressures of Hollywood were so tight that he couldn't exist. He couldn't exist around Olivia Newton-John. You got to be a strong person to, or an uncaring person, I guess. If it were me, I'd say whatever. You know, now go have fun, Olivia. Go do your thing. Have a good one. You know, I, I wouldn't care, but he cared. Not that he was a latch on, but that he truly loved her. He, yeah. He really he he would he would write her notes. He would uh, uh, send flowers. Uh, spend a lot of time at her house down in Malibu. She would come up and spend time at his house up in L.A. Mm -hmm. um, and so it was kind of, it was a good relationship by all takes. But the problem is, is when you're married to a very famous person, you can't go out to dinner. You just can't do it. Mm -hmm. uh, I remember when this thing hit in Dateline. Remember, we all couldn't go out to dinner. I couldn't go to a restaurant in Southeast Texas without five people coming up to the table wanting my autograph or, man, I saw you on TV. That was great. Are you Philip Klein? I remember walking when I really knew the power of Olivia Newton-John is when I was walking through Intercontinental Airport in Houston, Texas, and I was flying out uh, to the West Coast, uh, I think, to do some interviews. And people were after the show had aired. And pe I, 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 the people, while I was waiting on my plane, people would come up and say, tell us more about the story. Tell us. me." And I was like, who are you people? I mean, all these people coming up to me. And then I got to the plane and one of the nice stewardesses said, we're not going to sit you in the back. Come on up here to first class. And I was like, what? She, Come on up here to first class. Why do you want me in first class? Well, they're going to bother you if you're not up in first class. And this way we can block them. I hmm. said, block who? said, all these people that are kind of coming up to you and pointing at you. Yeah. And then, of course, the stewardesses would come up to me and say, tell me more about it. And I was like, oh, my God. You know, this is crazy, you know? One of the greatest things about being an investigator is you're never the focus of the story, right? Right. Now I'm the focus of the story. I started figuring out. And I was like, oh, God, here we go. Anyway. So we interviewed these people, and, two, and, and a few things broke out in the, in, the, in, the, in the bullet points. McDermott was a very private person, very quiet person. McDermott had serious financial issues, very serious financial issues. Uh, I don't care what anybody says. They say the media says five to $8,000. He owed him back child support. Well, that's not true. He owed close to, what was it, 48000 and it was increasing with principal interest in time. Yeah. By the time we got the case, it was close to $50,000. So that's going to be a backbreaker. Um, he had filed for bankruptcy. We had read his mm -hmm. bankruptcy. Um, so he had serious, serious, serious financial issues. So that kind of piqued our interest a little bit. Then we got into the inventory. LAPD gave us the inventory from the search warrant. We went through the inventory. There was nothing really there other than the guy didn't have a job. The guy didn't have a job upcoming. The guy couldn't pay his child support, but there was payments to a life insurance policy. Yep. And so we were shocked and surprise, surprise, guess where the life insurance policy came out of? Waco, Texas. Welcome to Texas, folks, where we do things different down here. <laughs> so we garnered a bunch of information and there's some other things that he always would help people in the neighborhood he cut his own lawn he'd do his own bushes he'd work really hard and trying to do the things that he could do to be a good steward to the community and so as we did that we were able to develop a profile of this guy and then the gentleman that we were interviewing told us this and i thought this was a very big surprise he told us that he couldn't 
handle life around Olivia because it was too hectic. They couldn't do things in life. They couldn't be an, a, 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 what would you say, a steward of the community? He couldn't be a... Well, he couldn't go in public. He couldn't do anything. Right. He, he, his life was, I guess, his maybe quality of what he his could do. His quality of life. That's, that's, a great, life yeah, that's a great statement right there. His quality not of life, what he wanted. His quality of life sucked. I mean, that's just what it was. And that we also discovered that Nepar was all over him about child support. Mm-hmm. And that Olivia was very sad because he would not be going down there as much. And this is according to the neighbor, neighbors, that it wasn't as, she was sad because he wasn't coming down as much. And of course, she likes to go during certain times of the year back down to her beloved place of Australia. Mm -hmm. Uh, And God bless her. It's a beautiful country. Australia is a beautiful country. Now, it's important to note that they broke up just a few days before he went missing. Right. So... The breakup was coming, according to the neighbors. Then we determined through, and I guess I got to keep one source anonymous that worked close to Olivia, that as the as the pressures of Hollywood life, I mean, I don't know what the hell the pressures would be, but, you know, I put my left hand on the Bible and raised my right hand, took a, swore, took a bullet for some of these people. I, I don't know how what the pressure would be to them, I guess, you know, us not doing our job. Whatever, yeah. but these people make millions and millions and millions and millions of dollars, and the homes are beautiful, and the ocean is beautiful. I guess it's hard, but he didn't have a job, had no money, and so he decided, made the decision he was going to break up with her rather than embarrass her. Because you know, if Olivia, you know, Olivia is dating a bum. I mean, that's that's the story that was coming from some of the tabloids at the time. Yeah, or at least a story that would be spun that way. The spun would be the spin would be that. And so anyway, long story short, um, he made the decision he's going to break up. So what he did was he got a card, wrote a nice, uh, a funny card. It was mm-hmm. described by our source that was very close to Olivia. Uh, and that um, um, it, uh, and some flowers, and he went down there and told her, look, it's too tough. Can't do this. Ain't going to happen. Mm-hmm. Now, I don't want to get into the rest of it because that's between Olivia and, and Patrick. If Olivia wants to tell that story, I think that that'd be an excellent story to tell so the public could understand. But it was very private, as she says. And one source very close to her that contacted me, that is a very famous person as well, contacted me and said, hey, look, you know, it's private between those two. Try to keep as much of it as private as you can. But uh, she did relay that that meeting, uh, I would say, uh, which made me look at the case a lot different. I kind of understood Patrick McDermott a little bit better. He had an ex-wife that was all over him, causing him nothing but grief. And then he had a girl that he was deeply in love with that he couldn't be with and, and live any sort of normal life. So that kind of set the stage. We went back to LAPD and said, look, uh, here's where we are on this. Here's what's going on. Um, they said, they kind of smiled and said, okay, we got the same. That's where we are. Okay. So it was time. It was time to contact Olivia's people, and it was time to contact Yvette Nibar. So the first thing we did was we want to start with Olivia. Now, we didn't, we realized that Nepar had started this shirt company, or she was selling shirts. She did not, uh, Yvette's history is, uh, her claim to fame is RoboCop, uh, Jump 10, or Jump, uh, it was a show on television. Jump Street. Jump Street, that was it. Melrose Place. Melrose Place. She did, a, she, she was, quite frankly, watching her act, which I, 
did stay up in my office a couple of times and just to kind of see what kind of actress she is. She's a damn good actress. Mm-hmm. Why she can't get jobs, I don't know. Maybe she was ostracized. Maybe she was hard to work with. Who knows? And I say that simply because Yvette would not work with us. Uh, we contacted Yvette. I talked to Yvette a couple of times on the phone. Uh, Miss Nipar um, was anything but cooperative. And so, again, as investigators, that kind of raises your antennas. And um, so we had to make the conscious decision uh, through the producers at Dateline, through the media, that we had to kind of leak out that who was cooperative and who wasn't. Well, we had Olivia that said, look, the past is the past. She was in a relationship. She was trying to rebuild her life. We get that. or We understand that. Nipar, who was closest to him at the point where he disappeared, was non-cooperative. And talking to her on the phone, uh, I made an appointment with her at a coffee shop somewhere in L.A. She said, I don't want any cameras. I agreed to that. I don't want my voice recorded. I agreed to that. Um, and I want to see what you got, why, why you're saying you think he's alive. I agree with that. Not a problem. Five minutes before, and I'm pulling up in the, in the parking lot of the coffee shop. It was going to be some, you know, really not seedy, but I mean, just a, it's a Hollywood place and it's a coffee shop in the, in the back of a building. And I perfectly knew if she showed up, she was going to record me. And I perfectly knew that, you know, it was probably was a, a setup and, you know, I'm prepared for that. Um, and I explained to Dateline, look, let's, let's sit, sit, let me sit her down. Let's see where we are. And maybe she wants to participate, 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 say that five times fast. <laughs> and so anyway, the, 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 uh, the long story is, is that we sat down. I was going to sit down. I sat down and my phone rang and it was Yvette. And she said, you know what? Uh, I'm not coming. Why not? Cause I'm not coming. Now, my belief is any, I've said this on this podcast before, any good investigator knows the answers to questions before you ask them. The first thing you're doing is always testing your subject to see if they're telling the truth. Mm-hmm. You test them when they lie, whether they look away from you, look down to the left or right, whether they have hand gestures, whether they move their hands a lot, and, uh, uh, you know, whether they sweat, whether they, well, we've had some pee on themselves that I've gotten hold of. <laughs> Uh, and some, you know, and, and, and so you see who they are and what they are and what they're about. Well, in this case, it was very interesting because uh, I knew that Yvette was going to come and I knew she was angry uh, with me asking questions in the neighborhood. She knew I was out asking questions from Hollywood producers, people that he worked with, studios that he worked with. I mean, mm-hmm. I was developing a profile, which as profilers, that's kind of our job. That's what we do. And so she became upset about it. And I think she, she, she knew that... Um, she wanted to protect Chance, she said, on the phone when she canceled our interview. And I said, Yvette, I think you're making a bad move. I think, and I'm paraphrasing, of course, I said, Yvette, I think you're making a bad move. I think you need to participate in this. Um, I think that he's alive. Uh, I think that maybe a plea from you. Uh, I do not want Chance involved in this whatsoever. Or I, I don't ever involve children. Uh, and I, I think by you saying, hey, look, everything's cool. Uh, Come on home. We'll figure it all out. There's a lot of child support on the table. At that point in time, she knew it was $48,000. She knew. She told me she knew. Uh, and so I said, okay, Yvette, you know, if this is what you want to do, why don't you think about it? Call me back in 15 minutes. I sat in the coffee shop for about 15 minutes, and she never returned the call. I tried to call her back. She would not take my call. And that was my end of my conversation with Yvette Nibar. 
So we got back to Texas and our antennas went up. Why wouldn't the park cooperate? Why did you, why did Olivia not want to be interviewed? And I can see why she's in a relationship with another man. And, you know, she had not done any interviews on it. Kind of was refusing with the media to do the, the Australian interviews, uh, interviewers were the most peaked up interest about it. And I think that that was, so. And there was a two year gap. So he went missing in 2005, mm-hmm. but we caught the case. We caught, exactly. And so there was a two year gap. So people were starting to move on. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, and like I say, we did interview all of here. There they are. There's the interviews right there. And we did all those interviews and we took notes. We took recordings and we transcribed stuff. And, you know, we went back and to Texas and we analyze. And that's the boring part of Dateline is us sitting in a conference room, analyzing information, discussing yellow lining stuff, uh, stuff that was interesting. So here's here's the picture we got. We got a guy, that's a gaffer, lighting guy, that dating a hot, beautiful star in L.A. who has an ex-wife that's hounding him for money, right? And I know what your questions are out there. I don't even have to ask Taylor what the questions are. Why didn't he ask, why didn't he ask Olivia Newton-John for money? And I got the answer to that. He was a very proud man. He just wanted to be a dad. He just wanted to have a job. That's all this guy wanted. He wanted to be a dad to Chance. And if Chance ever sits in front of me, which I hope he does, I will look him in the eyes and I'll tell him that's the profile I developed of this man. Mm-hmm. Why was he behind in in um, uh, in in his child support? You know, he, only he can answer that one day, uh, because I believe he will surface, and I will believe I do believe that. You know, uh, he will make a mistake one day, mm-hmm. or maybe not, maybe so. I hope the cartels leave him alone down there because that's all he is, is he's just trying to earn a buck and be a guy. And I think the pressures of all of it, it's kind of like one of those things I get, you know, I had, a, I had that murder suspect that I asked, why'd you pull the trigger and shoot him? Mm. And his answer yeah. was the pre- pressure was so high. Once I shot him, the pressure was off and I was done and I buried his body. And I drug him off and buried his body. People don't, people, when, when, when people get that narcissistic and they, and they make those kind of decisions, run away, kill somebody, rob a bank, whatever, the answers are always the same in different formats. They're always the same, which is the pressure was so high, I just couldn't do it anymore. And so we believe that that's what happened with Patrick Kim McDermott, is he just walked away from life. Now, the question everybody always has, did he set it up on the boat? I believe he did set it up on the boat. I believe he walked away from life thinking, I'm going to go start a new life for myself. And he used his middle name, Kim, we've learned mm-hmm. uh, in legal papers. He's used his name, Kim, Pat Kim, uh, and some other variations of that he's used. But what he did was he just left and, and uh, he had some money in the pocket because he didn't have any money in his wallet. Now, remember, the wallet had maybe a couple of bucks, but he didn't have the money that right. some of the witnesses said he had a lot of money. And so he walked and he went down there and he just disappeared out of life. And that's good. If that's what he wants to do, it's bad that he didn't he stand up and be a man to his son and exactly. say, look, this is what I'm doing. I can't handle life right now. I'm going to go find myself. Right. And that's what he should have done, but he didn't. But once, but just like I said, just like somebody in a homicide, once he do it, Oh my God, how do I get out of this? I don't no, want to get no out of this. No, there's no turning back. There's no turning back. 
And so he just disappeared into life. Now that brings us to uh, where he was found, what he was doing and how he was doing it and the situation out of the lawyers in Mexico. So what we'll do here is we'll take a quick break. We'll come back with the final part, part three of Patrick McDermott uh, and uh, his, uh, his story, let's say. Welcome back to uh, part three of uh, Patrick Kim McDermott. And his, uh, this is our first voice outside of Dateline NBC on this case, other than me walking off the day show. Yeah, we really um, haven't talked about it. This well, is our first time to go in-depth on your version of events of what's happened and not what people read in the media. What you're reality. doing is you're talking to the guy that probably did more investigation LAPD and the Coast Guard combined. So uh, we, uh, we're on it. So here we go. So we left off uh, in the podcast uh, with... Uh, McDermott down on the, uh, the beautiful, beautiful Baja Peninsula. And, um, and so we knew a few things. We knew, number one, he'd been seen. He's alive. Number two, that we had a witness who said, well, he's alive, but he works on a boat, and he's headed, and they always head down uh, in the wintertime. They always head down to the, down in what they call the, the, uh, the peninsula, the Southside Peninsula. And the third thing we knew is that the boat he worked on were owned by some, uh, what's the nice word to say? Um, well, some pretty serious people, I'd say. Yeah. And so um, we knew that 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 he was, we, we thought he was alive at that point because of what we, uh, what the investigation we had done. So we flew down to Puerto Vallarta uh, about six weeks later. So we flew down. We wanted everything to kind of calm down a little bit. Uh, you know, when we were in there, at some points we were being followed around by people. People were following the cameras, and, you know, like we were some kind of stars or something. And it was we had to a couple times shut it down. Uh, we did what we call B-roll, a lot of B-roll where mm -hmm. they'd ask me questions. The producers would ask me questions. I would do things. Um, and again, remember, I, you know, I get so focused on the investigation. I'm kind of a novice. Uh, and I was a novice uh, when it came to the national media. I, I never in my lifetime knew that this case would blow up like it did. It'd be so big. Uh, I didn't it, either. I mean, it, you know, <laughs> of cases in here now. Now, cases that we have now, the Patrick McDermott case is, is, is junior league. Yeah. Uh, the, the cases we have in here now, these are senior league cases with serious, like, uh, D, was it DYI or DIY? Jane always kid, kids me about it. DIY. Uh, DIY cases? Yeah, Trace kids me about it too, DIY cases, A&E, you know, all, oh, those, yeah, you know yeah, yeah. all those groups that yeah. follow us and follows us for around with cameras. You kid me about it. Charlie kid, everybody in this office kids me about it. Um, and and so we made the trip to Puerto Vallarta because based on the tips that we were getting in at the time, again, everybody says, y'all never got any tips. Well, here's a whole box of tips, okay? Some good, some bad. But the bottom line is, is that we flew down to Puerto Vallarta. Once we got down into Puerto Vallarta, um, we started uh, following a tip to a city called San Francisco. Everybody laughs when they hear that. San Francisco. And uh, we, um, you know, it's just one of those things. Sometimes in the investigation business, it's just luck. It's just flat out luck. So we're driving up through San Francisco and we get all the way up to the north side of San Francisco 
and I think we got what we got Gil, we got Amanda, we got everybody crammed in three uh, suburbans. We go up the mountain, go up into the mountains, and it's beautiful up there. I mean, it's like something out of the movies. You got different colored birds, you got iguanas running across the roads. You know, so we get up to San Francisco small town. We get into San Francisco, and the first thing we're all thinking about is, well, you know, the cartels kind of run the place up there. I'm just being honest with you. And um, well, it's Mexico. It's Mexico. So we get in. So we want to get in with a flash and we want to get out of there with a flash, right? Mm-hmm. We're staying down in Port Arthur. So it's a trip up there every day. So we check all these little cities on the way up. And by the time we get up to San Francisco, we, we get in, we get out of the car, the little camera guys get their gear on. And, um, uh, I get a call on my IFB says, you need to get down here to the beach. I'm like, what? What could happen at the beach? One of my investigators is there. He's got a guy stand there. He said, do you know this guy? And he says in Spanish. And I, you know, I speak a little bit of Spanish, but I don't, I'm not proficient in it. He goes, see, see, you're right there. I'm like, right there. What, what does that mean? And he goes, right there. I said, what do you mean right there? He's not, I don't see anybody sitting there. He goes, and he asked him back and forth some questions. Finally tells Gil, he says, he was just here. He just checked out of the hotel. He stayed in that hotel right there, points at this, you know, it's a Mexican hotel on the beach. He says, he just checked out of that one right there. I'm like, that one? That one? That's where he stayed. Okay. I go over to the, to the maitre d'. I said, do you know this guy? Yeah, right there. So what do you mean right there? He was just sitting right there. How long ago? Oh, say about an hour, two hours. I don't know. Go ask them in the hotel. He always comes here. I mean, he what? He always comes here. Now, you know, you got to be cautious about when you're in Mexico and the testimony people give you. I'm not saying all Mexicans are lying. They're not. But sometimes they like to, I'll just say it, screw with you um, when you're investigating down in Mexico. Mm-hmm. Give me some money. I'll tell you what I want you to know. That's the kind of thing that goes on down there. But in this case, both of these guys kept pointing at the table. So there was a young couple sitting over at another table. And our guys are interviewing, in-depth interviewing. I walk what? And I just walk over to this young couple. I said, hey, how long have you been here? Oh, hell, we've been drinking mimosas all morning, right? They're, they're surfers. Oh, we've been drinking mimosas all morning. Oh, you have? Okay, you're wound up. Yeah. You ever seen this guy? Had a wanted poster of him. Oh, no, it wasn't a wanted. I'm sorry. I think it was a bolo. Yeah. It was a bolo. I had a bolo poster. And I said, you ever seen this guy? And they both went, yeah, he's right there. Pointed to the same table. I'm like, are you kidding me? Nobody gets this lucky. <laughs> and so I said, okay. And I said, do you know where he was staying? Well, yeah, everybody stays at that hotel right there. That's where all of us surfers did. I'm like, oh, uh, Oh, my God. So I say, okay, thank you. Well, to hell with NBC, right? I'm on the hunt now. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm literally on the hunt. So I go up the stairs away from the beach, and I go down the street, Cobblestone Street, and I walk into the hotel lobby. I said, hi, my name's Philip Klein. I'm an investigator. No hable inglés. I said, oh, God, hold on. I whip out the paper. I said, do you know him? Oh, see, see, 
And I'm like, you know him. See, is he here today? She kind of looks at me and uh, I said, here? See, now? No, he he left. He, he he Time for him to go. Oh, God. So I go get Gail Gilbert. We, long story short, we had to get the information from her. What is he driving? Where does he go? You know, et cetera, et cetera. I go back in my notes while I'm waiting for Gil to go up there, and I'm looking in my notepad, and I look, and I overlooked some information that one of the neighbors had told me, that he had traveled with Olivia at one point down to Puerto Vallarta, and there was a lady that lived on a peninsula just over the mountains in the yachting area of uh, Puerto Vallarta. Looks mm-hmm. overlooked. Like and it also has its own yacht basin in there. It wasn't full. There were no, when we got there, it wasn't full of them. And this lady told us that, yeah, they used to come down here. Patrick, come down here before. We've, we've all been as family. We were good. I'm like, oh my God. Jesus, this is a hot zone, and I, I missed it. I mean, sometimes as an investigator, guys, you miss things. You That's why I tell my guys in this office, what do I tell y'all? Go over your notes. Read them again. Listen to your interviews. Go back read to the them beginning. Again. Go back to the beginning. Go with what you know. Mm-hmm. So we all, everybody, we run up there, and, you know, yeah, 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 yeah. How would he go? Well, he has a, has a car he uses, and he's in that car. And he left. It's a white, uh, it was a light, white, small, uh, I want to say a VW product. Uh, and he left. When did he leave? About mm, about two hours ago now. I'm like, holy crap. We're two hours behind this guy. <laughs> so I'm thinking to myself, okay, you know, what are we going to do? So we all pile in cars. And there was another little story there because we had to grab something to eat real quick. And there was another gentleman that had some interaction, let's, let's just say, wanted to know why we were in his town. <laughs> he wasn't the mayor, but he wanted to know why we were in his town. I explained <laughs> it to him, and he was cool with it. He said, fine, 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 just get out of town because you're creating a disturbance in my, in my town. Bringing too said, much attention. Too much attention. I said, we're gone because I don't want to be hanging from a, a fruit tree down there. So uh, we load up, we haul buns down there, get down to the look at my file. There's this lady's name. This is where they used to live. We tried to get to the house. We couldn't get to the house because it's on a secluded peninsula. But I did get, was able to get a phone number from someone down at the yachting basin where we stopped to try to regroup and make sure that, you know, we look for the white car, no white car. I mean, we were literally, it was a literal, literal hunt. And I'm like, okay, what are we going to do now? What are we going to do now? So we get in the car and we drive, and we drive down to Port of Arthur. And I said, guys, go down to the yacht basin. No, this, you know, he's going to be up there towards her house where he'd stayed before. No, it's not going to be that. We get down to the yachting basin. So a little bit of a disagreement broke out. And so finally I just put my foot down and said, I'm the lead investigator. I'm telling everybody what to do. Get your asses in the car. We're going down to the yachting basin. We're down to the yachting basin. Sure enough, the dock master. Everybody know what a dock master is? You know what a dock master is. Dock master is the guy who runs the port. Port master, dock master, whatever you want to call it. Ask him. Show him the picture. Show the people around. The, yeah, we know him. The yacht just left. The <laughs> yacht just left. Who gets that unlucky? 
Who gets that lucky and then that unlucky? Do your name of the name of the boat. Go talk to the dock master. So we go to the dock master. Hey, Phil Klein, investigator. You run the dock? Yeah. You know all the boats come in and out of here? I do. I log them in, log them out. Yes, of course, all this is Spanish. Do you know this guy? Hey, he looks familiar. I think he works on some boat in the in the area. Okay. Seen him before? I, I have when I've had dinner on one of the yachts. Oh, okay. Know his name? No. No names. Okay. Where was the last time you saw him? Well, he's over here. Doctor. Okay. So, what do you do? I asked him the $10,000 question. Who owns that boat that he's on? He looked at me and said, no, senor. You're not going to tell me. I said, why not? Of course, there's cameras with me. I'm there. Lambright's there. Few other people are there. Gil. Gil's there. And they look at me and say, no, me don't want to die. I, who gets that unlucky? So I asked around down the dock, do you know, from some of the yacht guys that were coming in from fishing and that sort of thing for the day, you know who that boat was? Uh, no, it just came in for fuel and a two-day stop, and et cetera. Crew got a couple days off. So we knew the story that we'd learned in San Francisco up north of San Francisco. You can read all the details in the book that I, I wrote on this. And so. Which I'm kicking myself that our books have come not come in. in. We sold out and we don't have a book in our office. Just get on Amazon. That last you one. can buy it so on Amazon. Is that right? You can buy it on yeah, Amazon. Buy it. Um, and I'm not humping a book, folks. I'm not humping a book. The book's been out there since 2015. Right, 2000, no, 2012. 2012. The book's been out there since 2012, so you know you can get it on Amazon. They'll you can podcast, you can do whatever. You want. Okay, mm-hmm. so we knew he was alive. So then we came back to the United States. We discussed it with NBC. NBC says, you know what? God dang it, this is exciting. I think we've got enough to do a show. We're going to do a show. Okay, great, fine, good. Thank you very much. This is 2009, though, right? Yep. And we say, good, fine, go do your show. So we're going to keep working the case until we. And at the end of the case, we ask if you watch, watch it. I think you can still get it online. Yeah, you can find it. Online and it gets shown on. Uh, oh God, what's the name of it? There's so many cable stations now. They show it every once in a while on Dateline. I think it's on MSN. It's one of the. It's one, one of the one networks. The it's the, it run. It reruns old Dateline shows over and over and over, and over again. One time, we always know when it's shown because the phones light up in here. Or so, my friends will be like, "Hey, yeah, so I didn't did. know that your dad did this." <laughs> like, well, yeah, well, watch the news a little bit more. Anyway, so so anyway, the, the bottom line is during this time, Yvette Napar and Olivia Newton John start becoming closer and closer and closer and closer together. Mm-hmm. And Yvette starts humping. Olivia Newton-John's books, and Olivia Newton-John humps um, uh, her shirt company. And so uh, it's a cute little story, too. I, I, well, you know, as much as I hate Yvette Napar, I love this girl. I mean, she gets out there and she does it. She makes her own shirt company. She's a hard worker. Um, she loves to show herself off on Harleys. Last time my crew told me, I don't really look at her because <laughs> my guys come in and tell me about it. But she uh, she, she does this uh she does this deal where she goes out and rides motorcycles and tries to be a badass. I guess that's her image. That's her look. That's what she wants to do. I think if she did her hair, like some of these pictures I'm looking at right here, I think if she did her hair and she really um, tried to do uh, uh, 
tried to uh, uh, just be a professional actress. I think at her age, she would be wonderful for some parts, don't you? Yeah. I mean, she's really a great actress. So, um, you know, and I say washed up simply because Hollywood washed her up. And I don't know why Hollywood washed her up. I think that just, I don't it's know. Sad. But anyway, um, so they became friends. And so, of course, Olivia's PR people out in L.A. starts getting the nose that, uh-oh, here comes Dateline. They're fixing to do a show, and this crazy private investigator is going to come up, and they're going to say he's alive. So, and again, this is all in the book, all the details in the book. The details goes into deep detail, but I'm just skimming yeah. across it off. But the bottom line is this. Well, they, they forged a relationship. So they forged a... a, a they became a duo. Oh, duo. That's the best way to put it. Mm -hmm. And of course, Olivia's longtime uh, bodyguard and and consultant, safety and security consultant, Gavin DeBecker was was talking to her. And I and by the way, I was talking to Gavin at the same time because Gavin did a cursory look uh, into the case when she first went. Gavin DeBecker writes a book called uh, Fear, um, and a bunch of different acronyms always Fear. But uh, he he Gavin is probably one of the most decorated investigator. Uh, personal protection officers in the United States. I have so much admiration for this guy. Uh, and he's written some really great books that people, women that come in here that mm -hmm. have been abused, we always tell them, get Gavin's book, Fear, and read it. You need to read it. Uh, because uh, the, the greatest power that you have over somebody is the power of the unknown. Uh, lawyers use it. Politicians use it. Bad guys use it. The fear of the unknown. And Gavin breaks it down. And he's really a great guy. So, long story short, we get into this. I've said this a hundred times. I got to quit saying that. Um, we get into uh, they get into production, uh, and they say, "Philip, we need you to fly out to Long Beach, California. We want to do what they call the give and take." And they assign me that guy, and I can't remember that guy's name. He's real famous on Dateline NBC. Uh, great super guy. Uh, and uh, we sit down at the at the marina. And they mic me up and they put me on camera. And I know something's wrong because no one's talking to me. And I'm like, why aren't these people talking to me? And they're being real short with me. And, and, and Delmonico's being real short with me. And he's got this look on his face like, oh, God, how's Philip going to react? Because I'd been with Joe for a couple of years now. Mm -hmm. And I dealt with him, talked to him on the phone, rode with him, flew with him, ate dinners with him. I mean, I, I knew Joe DeMonico pretty well. And again, I have nothing but admiration for this man. I love him. So we begin uh, the give and take, and it was the Philip Klein Bass show. How do you know this? How do you know that? How, why do you say this? Why do you say that? And he's doing his job. Then this guy says to me, he says, uh, the, the, the questioner, he starts talking to me about, well, how come we don't see him? How come we don't? And, and all of a sudden I figure out, oh God, they're coming after me. And it's a scary process in the middle of an interview when you know that these people that have been so nice to you and you broke bread with and you talked about your children, had dinner at my house. Actually, the whole crew came over to dinner. For spaghetti. At, for spaghetti, my famous spaghetti. And, and, we, and we, had, we had a huge sat on the porch, talked, sat out by the pool, you know, the whole bit. And these guys had turned on me. And they were started asking really, and maybe they were just doing their jobs. I don't know. But that was the first indication that it was, uh-oh, was coming. So that's what started the build of mistrust with, with Dateline NBC and NBC.
So I get a call on a Thursday after well, it was Thursday, about three o'clock. I get a call. Hey, Philip. Yeah. This is uh oh gosh, I'm having another mental blank. What's her name? Hey. Uh, up in up in the New York. Hey Philip, we want to let you know Sunday night we're gonna air the show. What? We're gonna air the show Sunday night. What? We're gonna air the show Sunday night. You are? Yeah. Well, don't you think three days notice is a little bit well, we want to we want to put you in because I guess they do focus groups and the focus groups went absolutely nut over the shows. They went nuts. Just nuts. So here we go. I get on the show. Show comes on. The first show is on the West Coast. I mean, I'm sorry, on the East Coast. And it comes on at uh, five o'clock, roughly. Uh, five o'clock my time, six o'clock East Coast time. So I call the crew on Sunday morning. I said, look, I just in case tips come in, because we do put a rider at the bottom. They get, did say, yeah, we have a rider. If you have tips, you know, St. Patrick down this area, let us know. I mean, what could happen? We'll get one or two phone calls. At about six o'clock, I fed everybody pizza and we're looking around and my assistant goes at the time, she goes, uh-oh. I said, what do you mean, uh-oh? Phone systems just went down. I said, what? And it's like 5.05 here. I said, what do you mean the phone systems went down? I don't know. Hold on. Let me do a systems reset. She does a systems reset and it comes right back up. And then all of a sudden, all six lines are lit. And I'm like, what is going on? Phone system goes down again. What? You know, God, this is not the right time for this to happen. Long story short, there were so many phone calls coming into our offices that it literally overtook, overtook our phone system. So we did a couple little changes on the phone system. It worked. Everyone was on the phone taking tips, taking calls. People were saying, congratulations, so great. Telling us good, how good the show was, how bad the show was. All the, all the stuff people do, the wackos that would call and say they're going to kill me. I think that night I got how many, seven, eight death, death threats, something like that. I stayed out of here, so I don't know. And so, yeah, you did. You <laughs> left. You said, I can't do this. And so a lot of people walked out that night and said, I can't do this. This is crazy. And that was the first indication. Then it's six o'clock when it did Central and then seven o'clock when it did Mountain and Pacific. We, we just knew that this was going to be bigger than we ever dreamed. And so... In the podcast, what, what I'm podcast. In the book, I kind of describe what happened that day, but there are a couple things that I want to. Everybody always asks, well, why didn't you do part two? The reason I didn't do part two is because I called NBC the next morning after my neighbor called me and said there were some people digging in my trash. And I walked out my front door and asked them what the hell they were doing in my trash. And they had a British accent. And they said, I'd be fly all night and I want to see, you know, if you have any notes on Patrick McDermott. I said, get the hell off my property. And then, of course, the police department calls me and says, what, do satellite trucks out in front of your offices? You're blocking traffic on Needle and Avenue. What are you, I'm like, do what? What are you talking about? And so I raced, I took a shower real quick, raced over the office. I had people following me in cars from my house, from my freaking house. I had the paparazzi and the media follow me from my house over to the office. And when I got to the office, it was just unbelievable. I didn't know what to do. And I called NBC and I said, guys, I need help. This is overwhelming. We can't even operate. What we need, we got people in our front of our, we got live shots. We've got, we need help. And NBC dropped me in the fat. We don't do that. What do you mean you don't do that? Well, we don't do that. I said, okay. So I was lucky to get uh, uh, Rick, uh, what's his name? Out in, uh, LA. Binko. Uh, Gary Binko and Yvette Shearer. Mm -hmm. God bless Yvette Shearer. 
Love me some of Yvette Shearer. She's a publicist out in LA, five foot nothing, former UCLA or USC cheerleader, and she's meaner than a snake. And let me tell you something, she can straight media out in about 10 seconds. <laughs> and we got back to, we got to normal business within 48 hours. I flew out to LA and she got me arranged to do the right thing. In the meantime, the part didn't come out very well in this thing. She didn't look very well, and for good reason. There were some things that didn't look very well. And um, she relatively kept her mouth shut up until the point where she made contact with me. Now, she contacts me, and I get on the phone and call her back because I was unavailable at the time. Mm -hmm. She promptly goes to LAPD. I'm not kidding, folks. This, you can't make this stuff up. She goes to LAPD and says, I'm harassing her. LAPD calls me and goes, hey, client, what's going on? Nothing. We just got a complaint on you. I said, really? From who? You bet in the car. What? What are you talking about? Did you talk to her on the phone? Yeah, I returned her call. She called you? Yeah, well, she didn't tell us that. Yeah, that's what happened. And it all revolved around the facts that you got with the proof of life, right? Exactly. We had proof of life. And this was, again, later on down the line. So Nepar starts a negative campaign because folks like the Daily Mail and a lot of people start calling her. And 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 so she puts out a statement and I've saved it on my phone because I always look at it and remind me and smile that whenever you get somebody, you know, that may be involved in something, they always try to point the finger elsewhere. And so I want to quote this for you on this podcast. And we may go a little long and have to go to another one, but we'll We'll, we'll shut this portion down. We'll just do a part four. That'll be fine. We'll just do one little part four. You're going all in today. I am today. I, I, because people like this really make me angry. Yes. Really make me angry. Not for me. I could care less. Call me whatever you want to call me. But the, the, No, they're blocking the truth. They're that's blocking what the truth from coming out from her child. Yeah. And that's why I say, I hope Chance comes down here and sees this stuff. Anyway, here's what she puts out to the media. Quote, Shortly after the book's release, McDermott's ex-wife, Yvette DePauer, asked Amazon to stop promoting it as Klein was a serial liar who's simply looking to be famous in, uh, to be famous at the expense of unfortunate tragic tragi tragedy in our lives. She literally thinks she's something. An actress that starred on 21 Jump Street thinks she's got gravitas enough to write a letter to Jeff Bezos at Amazon and say, hey, shut Klein down and shut his book down. Well, Bezos immediately, his staff, who I talked to, mm -hmm. they, called uh, our they called our office and said, what's the scoop here? I said, well, we did this thing with Dateline. We're selling books. How many books are we selling? They go, well, we're, we're not going to stop the sale because you're selling the, shit, selling, selling the heck out of, out of uh, books. We're going to leave it going. I mean, you're, you're doing well. Mm -hmm. So, and it's nothing. It's just your story. I mean, what's the deal? So that really made her mad. And what really got me was shortly after, I'm going to re re repeat this again, quote, Klein, uh, Amazon, to stop. Klein is a serial liar who is simply looking to be famous at the expense of unfortunate tragedy in our lives. I want all of you to remember that. Remember what she wrote. That's what she wrote. That I'm a serial liar. That's all she's got. I'm a serial liar. There it is right there. I'm a serial liar simply looking to be famous at the expense of unfortunate tragedy in then she goes on in the quote to say, in a nutshell, Mr. Klein has promised us the family proof of life for years now. 
yet has never produced anything whatsoever. My son has been through enough emotional torment over this. He has yet to been able to move on due to Mr. Klein's continual efforts to keep him in the public eye. Are you friggin' kidding me? Are you friggin' kidding me? So they want... They want us to package these boxes up and fly up to California and sit down with them and do a dog and pony show. Hey, Yvette, how about this? How about you get your ass on an airplane and come down here, not anymore because your son's 18, but how about you put your son's butt on an airplane and send him down here and meet the investigators that investigated this, this dedicated group of investigators that did this. My, y'all need to listen to this. My position is, I don't care what you say about me, but you're not going to talk about the investigators in my office that worked so hard to get this case done. Not me. I'm just the guy that coordinates it and makes the decisions. These guys that were out there kicking snakes, these guys that were out there in second world country uh, homes, hotels, sleeping in Tahoe's. You, you, you go ahead and say what you want to say about me. Not a problem. Call me what you want to call me. Not a problem. But you're not going to talk about my people. We'll do part four here in just a second. And I want to tell you a little bit about what's going on now and what's led us to this podcast. We'll be back in just a second. So, uh, we decided to do one small little part four to this podcast, and I, and I hope you all are enjoying it. Uh, you know, I just had a, I just had somebody on live on Facebook say, "I'm what is it, rude, insensitive?" I'm really not. I don't want to defend myself because it, everybody figured out. But uh, you know, a lot of people say I am rude and I'm, I am pretty tough. But folks, I, 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 like I said to them just a minute ago, I'm not Mr. Congeniality. People don't hire me to be Mr. Congeniality. They hire me to find their families and and get to the bottom of it. And uh, Diane think, says, matter of fact, and yeah, I'll maybe like matter of fact, maybe matter of fact. So uh, as we're, you can watch this uh, podcast being recorded uh, from Klein Investigations headquarters in what we call the war room. Uh, you can watch this uh, being recorded uh, on, on our Facebook channel, correct? Correct. All right. Facebook channel. As you can tell, I'm not Mr. Social Media, but uh, <laughs> uh, I can't read social media, but I'm just not Mr. Social Media. So we left off. Uh, in this podcast, talking about uh, Miss Nipar uh, and the issues that were brought forth and what she said about me. Um, during the time of the, the, the I, I would say it was about a month long onslaught of national media, worldwide media, me flying to LA, back and forth from LA, back and forth to New York, the numbers came in on the show. And it was one of the top rated Dateline NBCs that had been broadcast according to NBC and what they told me. And of course, when that happens, what happens? They came back with another contract and wanted to do part two. I had a bad taste in my mouth from where they did the interview with me in out in California, made me look like I was a bad guy. Maybe that's just good TV. I don't know. I'm not a TV guy. And then of course, when I needed help at the, at the, at the worst time I needed help uh, during this management of uh, media crisis, uh, they wouldn't provide anybody to me. And I felt like I was thrown to the dogs. So, like I said, I hired Shear. I hired a guy named Gary Binko. They both look at the contract. Once they looked at the contract, 
they said, well, this is not enough money for what you need to do. I came back, there was some more money put in, more money taken out, some expenses paid, you know, that sort of thing. Then negotiations back and forth. Uh, and I just made the firm decision that I wasn't going to do that. So somebody at NBC leaked it that Clyde's not going to do part two. That's my option. I don't want to do part two. I don't want to go through what I've just been through for two years and then all of a sudden be how I felt. They'll probably tell a different story, but I felt I was thrown to the dogs. That doesn't mean I didn't love uh, uh, Miss Marshall up at NBC, uh, 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 the, the Delmonico. I didn't love him. Uh, all the camera crew, the gaffers, you know, all the people that, that were involved in the show, I, did, I loved every single one of them. In fact, if I ever see one of them again, you know, I'll give them a hug and tell them how much I appreciate them because they did really great stuff. But I will say this. Anytime from now on I do a contract, I, I, I tell them they're going to pay money to Yvette Shearer because she is just, oh, my God, she's just a godsend. I love that lady. And so my belief is, is that if I had continued on with this, it, it would have been a bad situation. You can read in the book about the proof of life and what we did. Was it underhanded? Yeah. Was it good investigation work? Yeah. It was wonderful investigation work. It has to do with DNA. It has to do with uh, our team getting a sample uh, of chances DNA. Uh, and there's a lot to it. And so it's too much to sit here because we'll be here another three hours talking about it. But yeah, we did our jobs. And yeah, we did get proof of life. So once we got proof of life, we advised everybody that we had proof of life. Uh, and at that point, um, all hell broke loose. McDermott, we got a letter from a, on our fax machine from a company, a, a law firm, down in Mexico City, Mexico. First thing I did whenever I get a lawyer letter, first thing I do, I'm not a lawyer, don't play one on TV and don't have the underwear to do it. And I simply... Call our own lawyer. Uh, called our own lawyer that we keep on retainer around this place. And uh, I said, hey, I uh, got this letter. What's your interpretation of it? Well, do you want to have an international lawsuit? No. Are you still working for NBC? No. Shut it down. Okay, we'll shut it down. So we shut it down. Um, what the, law the lawyers just said, we represent Patrick, or Patrick Kim. Mm -hmm. uh, we represent him. Because um, he wasn't going by McDermott at this point. At this point, he's not going by McDermott. He's going by another name. And please shut it down. If you don't, give us the name of your client so we can have talks with him. Well, we don't have a client. And under Texas law, you got to have a client to investigate. So you just don't go out and investigate, folks. You just don't do it. You just don't go out and investigate. It's against the law. What? Against, against the, the law. Against the law. Yeah, exactly right. So... That's why we shut it down. And you can get in the book and you can read what we did and that sort of thing. During this time, anybody who will listen, the part talks about how bad we are, how bad I am, and what we did, and how bad it was. No, it's just good investigation work. It's undercover investigation work. It's good investigation work. That's why, again, why people hire us. So that brings us to current date and why we're on here today. We've been in the national media for the last two weeks. All that led up to this. All my Google alerts. All the Google alerts on Philip Klein. Daily Mail writes a story. As well, what's the name of these Yahoo's? This is called uh, 
Honey Celebrity. Honey Celebrity, it's under nine companies.com. I don't know. Honey, but you can. I think it's an Australian company. It's an Australian company. I start picking up the phone. I'm not talking about the Patrick McDermott case anymore. I'm done. I mean, it's I've got too many other cases in here with families that need me. So they write this horrific story about how bad Philip Klein is, how bad Philip Klein's a serial liar, how bad they blah, 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 blah. You know, blah, blah, blah. Same old crap. <clears throat> Sounds like our pedophile, doesn't it? Mm-hmm. Writes stuff about me. Anyway, um, so we look at it, and I say to myself, I, I left the office early that day. Yep. And I just said, you know, I'm not going to put up with this today. I'm, I'm going to go take a walk. I think I grabbed one of my grandchildren, and we went and had ice cream. And um, I uh, started thinking to myself, you know what? There's a time where you have to just stand up for yourself, and you just have to tell the truth. Mm-hmm. That's the podcast today. Yep. Folks. I believe Patrick McDermott is alive. I believe I have the proof of life. Is it conventional? No. If I really pressed it and did what I think I needed to do undercover and go after him, I don't think I'd make it. I think I'd be hanging from an overpass somewhere in Mexico. For the safety of myself, my family, it's probably best that we just kind of let it go. But I was accused of writing a book. and Let me tell you all why I wrote the book. I wrote the book because we just got sick of people calling us. Mm-hmm. We got sick of the media calls, ABC, NBC, CBS, CNN, Fox. I mean, you name it. I mean, they'd set up cameras out here. They'd try to, they'd offer, they think they're throwing money at me. They, you know, you want, we know, we know you want to get your word out. We know this is good for your business. People will hire you over this. I'm like, look, I got enough business in here to keep me busy till what, 2010. And I, I just, you know, no. I'm not, I'm not going to do this. I'm not. Made a conscious decision. Let the book speak for what the book's going to speak for. And that's why I wrote the book. So that everybody could see the inside of what happened, according to me. So, I get a call from the Daily Mail. This was said about you. I believe it was the Daily Mail. Some Australian group called me and said, this is what's being said about you. Do you have anything you need to say? I said, read the book. Oh, okay. So, again, there's a time where you got to stand up and you got to tell the truth. you got to mm-hmm. tell everybody, hey, this is what happened. So I did. I said, read the book. And then I asked the reporter this. Tell me why you're calling me 15 years later, 16 years later. Why, why are you calling me? What's going on? You didn't hear? No, didn't hear. You didn't know? No. Did Olivia die? What, I mean, what's going on? No, she's very well alive. But she's hooked up with Yvette Nipar. Oh, okay, cool. Nipar's writing a book. I said, I'm, I'm sorry, what did you just say? Nipar's writing a book. Yvette Nipar's writing a book. Well, yeah, she's writing a book. What are the chances? What are the chances of what? Well, that's the book. And in that book, they're sounds like they're fixing to light you up. I said, wait a minute, hold on just a minute. I started laughing. I said, are you, this is a, this is a crank call at this point, I think. Yeah. This is a crank call. This is, I, tell, I called you in the office. I yep. said, what, what is this, a damn crank call coming on here? Listen to this. Yvette Napar, who all along in this case 
Has refused to cooperate. Has refused to cooperate, refused to send her son to us, refused to even make a statement thinking, oh, that Klein guy, he's just trying to make a name for himself. He's a serial liar. And everything we see that she's done, that she's written, that she's talked to the police about, don't match to the facts of the true witnesses, the innocent people that rode on the boat, the innocent people in the neighborhood, the innocent people that work in Hollywood, the innocent people that work in Malibu, the innocent people being Olivia Newton-John. The truth has never been told out of this woman's mouth. She's going to do what she accuses me of doing, and she's going to write a book and think she's Lily Scott clean? Here's what I'm saying to you, friends. Get my book. Go to the library. It's in most libraries. Get my book. Read my book. Get it. You can get it online, Amazon. Get it anywhere. You can get it. You can get it. We have Kindle download. editions. You can download it on the Kindle uh, edition. You got a Kindle, which I think they're going to go on day. But anyway, get a Kindle Maybe. or download it on your Kindle. Read the book. Read what really happened. This is not just for me. I went around and interviewed everybody in the office to make sure my memory is correct. Of these three boxes here, two of two more. I think no, we got three more. Three more boxes. Off four these boxes. Six boxes. Yeah. Six boxes of work product is what this book is based upon. I didn't just sit at the typewriter and write a book, folks. I researched it. I went through the evidence, went through the handwritten notes, went through the type notes, went through the recordings, went through it all, and wrote the book. Now, she's going to try to cleanse herself cleanse herself with a book with Olivia Newton-John. Again, this woman would have nothing if it wasn't for Olivia Newton-John. She wouldn't have a shirt company. She wouldn't have a, a home to live in, that beautiful Harley she rides. Mm -hmm. And now she says, oh, it's so hard writing a book. Well, welcome to the damn real world where you don't have to get behind a camera and make a fool of yourself. That's what I think. And I know that's pretty strong and harsh. But you're not going to, and again, I say this, Caroline, and all of you in the podcast world, I say this to the general public. You're, you can say what you want to say about me, like the little girl just a minute ago said, you know what, you sure are harsh. You are sort of mean or whatever I am. But she says you're a good investigator. Well, that's fine. But I'm not here to be Mary Poppins, okay? The dress doesn't fit me, okay? You can swing a cat in the room of investigators, and I guarantee you, you won't hit me. Want to know why? Because the truth is the ultimate defense. When you read that book and you all of a sudden find out and the police find out and the, and the Coast Guard finds out and why Nesbeth never investigated this, I, I don't know, that there was a 106, I think it's $160,000 insurance policy yeah. on him that would have benefited her in the name of chance, and she was struggling with financial problems as well. Well, folks, you think about that. The question I've always had is this. 
What did Nimpar know? When did she know it? Repeat it again. What did Nimpar know? And when did she know it? Because I know why she's mad at me. Because as we started this podcast, I made the phone call to Waco, Texas to an insurance company. And I got in touch with an insurance investigator that we had done business with before. And I told him the story. And I said, let me tell you something. Why don't you come on down here and you can look at our work product. And you can see, you can say he's full of crap or he's not full of crap. He said, no, I don't think we need to do that. You wouldn't have got on national TV. You would not have written a book if you didn't have the evidence. I got the evidence. The other question is, if I was so bad, Miss Napar, why didn't you hire legal counsel and why didn't you sue me? We have a thing down here called the TCPA. I'd light you up under the TCPA rule so fast to make your little hair burn. That's what I'm trying to say to everyone. This and Nepal writing this book and you folks in the national media, hey, Daily Mail, are you listening? Ask yourself those questions. Why didn't she sue me? Why didn't she send Chance down? Why didn't she put her butt into an airplane seat and come down here and look at the results? I know why. Because she already knew. I know why because she didn't want to become implicated. And now, here we go, using, in my opinion, and I don't have the right to have an opinion, using an American and an Australian and a European hero called Olivia Newton-John again to hump another product to make money. You see, I turned down the big money, and I wrote the book. Why did I do that? I have the responsibility of, I can't tell you how many employees that work for this firm, both employees and contractors mm -hmm. that work for this firm, that if I'm away from it, this firm would fall on top of itself. Not because there's not people here to run it, okay? Because I would have to put all my time, energy, effort into that case and fight off lawsuits, fight off cartels, fight off, you name it. I'm not, it's not worth it. it. It just wasn't worth it. Sometimes if somebody puts a big stack of dirty money in front of you, it's okay to walk away. I've walked away twice now from big money. And I'm, folks, I'm talking, I'm talking seven figures, something that probably I could go live down on the island down there in Puerto Vallarta and have a flower drink and just enjoy life. But you know what? You gotta have a conscience. You gotta do the right thing. And I believe this firm did the right thing. You see, long time ago, I'm just gonna tell what my father told me a long time ago. He told me three things when I left for college at Texas Tech. Always thank a man for a job. He didn't have to hire you. No matter if you're fired or what, always thank a man for a job. Number two, give back to the community what the community's given to you. I've given 30 years of my life to this community, and I've given back every chance I get. Even to the little Girl Scouts that come through with the Girl Scout cookies that I put in this office that are gone within, what, 10 minutes, and I don't get one. And three, the most important thing, always leave a place better than you found it. 
I was satisfied in my soul that I had left the Patrick McDermott case better than I found it. It's up to Patrick to do the right thing. Always do the right thing. It's up to Patrick to do it. But guess what, folks? Patrick's made that decision not to do the right thing. Not my monkey, not my zoo. But now you're going to write a book again, and you're going to talk about how bad I am. What you went through, you put yourself through it in the park, not me. So you folks in the national media, as we go through this next couple of, what, next year, I think she says it's coming out. And the next year you're coming out, you keep that in mind. All I'm asking is, you read my book first, get it online. You know, we probably give a bunch of them away free here, Carolina. We, we do. I've ordered, a, in. I've ordered a I've ordered a ton. As fast as they come in, they go out the door. Uh, uh, clients get a copy if they want one. I, I don't. You know, I don't care. Everybody can have a copy. But I want you guys to keep that in mind. Olivia Newton-John is an American treasure, an Australian treasure, a European treasure, a worldwide treasure. Look what she's done in her life. Beat cancer. McDermott. Probably was a studly guy. She was attracted to him. He was a sweet guy. I've heard comments that she, oh, he's so sweet. He's so kind. Okay. Yvette Nepar. If anybody's been trying to ride the train, it's Yvette Nepar, not Philip Klein. I was just hired by a news media agency to figure out what went on. And I figured it out. And I presented my evidence. And it was good enough to go on air on NBC. It was good enough to write a book. The lawyers read the book. Mm -hmm. Bless the book. And now you want to write a book 15 years later and start talking about how bad everybody was, except for yourself? Well, here's my advice, Ms. Napar. And I'll conclude this beautiful, long podcast with this. Maybe it's time that you get your narcissistic butt into a doctor's office and you figure out what's wrong with you. You never did the right thing. Do the right thing. Chance is probably a great kid. It was probably hard on you to raise that kid. I don't know why you're not a famous actress. By gads, you should be. I've watched your interviews. I've watched your films. Just to see who you are and how you do. And you're good. But when you write a book, you're not that good. Words mean things. Don't ever forget that, folks. Words mean things. When you read her book, I want you to remember, words mean things. You better be sure you write them right. Thank you very much for listening to this podcast. Really appreciate it. Thank you for all your support. We hope you enjoy this. If you have questions, obviously, you can call Caroline, email us. It's all up there on the internet at kleininvestigations.com. And uh, you can get to us. And, and I want to thank all of our clients, as I always do, uh, from the law clients to the, the folks that come in off the street or all around the world. Uh, you know, we're very well known for not letting uh, letting people down. We're very well known for, for uh, standing by our clients and, and doing the right thing. And if you haven't already, make sure to follow us on our podcast at The Klein Files. We also have our Facebook page set up, The Klein Files, as well. Um, we go back and forth between Klein Investigations. If we post something on Klein Files, we'll post it to Klein Investigations. But we're asking everybody to follow The Klein Files as well. Very good. And again, thank you for listening. We'll, uh, we'll announce the next podcast here in the next week. Have a good one.